How did Christianity get started? What is its future to millennia later? I'm presenting a five-part series on revisioning Christianity with my guests Bart Ehrman, John Dominic Crossan, John Shelby Spong, Angela Yarber, and this week, David Skirbina. David Skirbina makes the case that Christianity is the result of a malicious hoax. Well, the value of the Christian story is supposed to be is, is lies in, in the truth of its claims, right? That, that okay. Jesus was the Son of God, that you need to believe in him, and that you will go to heaven and live forever with, with God or Jesus or something. So just on that fact alone, if this, is, if this is the construction, if there's no factual or actual reason to believe that that's true, and yet you're telling people it's true, uh, I mean, that's hor- horrendously unethical, and it cannot possibly lead to a good outcome. You're, you're constructing a fairy tale, and you're telling people to believe this fairy tale because it's going to make them better, better people. <laughs> I mean, this is outrageous. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. This is the third part of a series on revisioning Christianity. Different scholars bring different views to help us understand the history of Christianity and its future. How did Christianity become empire's religion? Is it believable today? Was it ever believable? Does it yet have a message to inspire peace and justice? How is it being reshaped and reframed, especially from a feminist perspective? Is Christianity the result of a malicious hoax and a bad idea? My five guests include John Shelby Spong, author of the newly released Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today, and Angela Yarber, creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. Those interviews are yet to come. Already we heard from Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Cross, and you can hear those interviews on podcast at progressivespirit.net. In this episode, I speak with David Skirbina, whose book is called The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 years. When you have uh, a story of Jesus which is highly improbable on its face, and then you look at the supporting evidence and you find that it's lacking, and then you look at the timeline of key events, that, particularly the, the letters from Paul and the Gospels, and you see that these things show up decades after the alleged events, um, and there's no contemporaneous uh, confirmation of any of these stories, and all these fishy little clues start bubbling up. And, and yet here we have a Bible and letters from Paul who was acting like this is absolutely true, indubitably true, and Jesus was here and he's the Savior and he's the Son of God. And to me, this is more than just suspicious. This is, uh, to me, it has to be a deliberate act. Somebody had to deliberately mislead and deceive the reader or the, who they were speaking to to, to promulgate this, this, this patently false story. And, and even the Jesus skeptics today, as far as I know, they never actually uh, go quite that far to assume that there was some malicious motive in place. And to, and to me, that's, that's the key. That really makes the whole story make sense. And if you leave that out, then it's just some, some accidental story about some regular guy who just died and somehow accidentally or innocently got turned into a, into a miraculous uh, Son of God story. Dr. David Skirbina is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, where he's taught since 2003. His areas of expertise are philosophy of mind, philosophy of technology, and history of religion. Professor Skirbina's books include Panpsychism in the West, 
The Metaphysics of Technology and Mind That Abides. Professor Skirbina corresponded extensively with Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and in 2010 published Technological Slavery. This was the first book written by Ted Kaczynski. It contains the only corrected version of his manifesto, five previously unpublished essays, and about 100 pages of letters to Dr. Skirbina. Dr. Skirbina is a pioneer in eco-philosophy, encompassing ethics, metaphysics, and cosmology, and is deputy director of the Eco-Philosophy Center. He ran for lieutenant governor for the state of Michigan in 2006 with the Green Party. He has a master's degree in mathematics and a Ph.D. in philosophy. He's been active in the University of Michigan calling for divestment from Israel. Dr. Skirbina is on Skype with me from Dearborn, Michigan, to discuss his book, The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 years. Welcome, Dr. Skirbina, to Progressive Spirit. Hi, John. Glad to be here. The book that we're going to talk about today is called, uh, the full title is The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. A lot of provocative, uh, exciting things in this book. Tell me, first of all, how how, uh, uh, did you decide to write this? Well, I've been a longtime critic of uh, Christianity, the Christian story, organized religion. I guess this probably goes back to a long time, middle school days, when I had uh, some religious um, schoolmates, and they were advocating uh, creation stories, and I was a big proponent of evolution. So uh, that sort of put me immediately on the wrong side of the Christian fence, uh, so to speak. And um, so, yeah, obviously just, you know, always viewed these, Stories skeptically, view the Bible skeptically. Um, I, you know, as you as you progress in your career, you learn about the problems of evidence and logical problems, and uh, the, the the role of propaganda for religion and so forth. And and um, yeah, I guess my skepticism just increasingly grew over time. And um, obviously, something happened back then, particularly in the, in the Christian story. To me, there was a lot of nonsense there. So I was trying to make sense of the nonsense and trying to put a structure behind it. And ultimately, that led me to the the thesis of the Jesus hoax. All right, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, But one of the things that you mentioned right at the beginning that I think is really important uh, is you talk about who really talks about Christian history. And, And most of the people who write or study about Christian history are, for the most part, Christians. And that uh, puts uh, a spin that will be logically perhaps in favor of Christianity. Tell me about what it means to be uh, someone who's not a Christian writing about Christian history and why that's important. Well, right. When you consider most of the experts who are generally academics of some sort, yeah, you know, they, they're writing from a kind of a perspective. And as, as I say, either the, most of them are either explicitly or, or implicitly Christian because this is their area of interest, they're attracted to it. Uh, they generally defend it. They take a very sympathetic view. They don't look at skeptical stances very well. They don't. They don't really analyze counter counter pro, uh, proposals in, in much depth. So they're just generally very sympathetic, sympathetic and and, and un, uncritical in their analysis. Um, and certainly, this comes out when you're able to analyze the writings or you can talk to them in person. You, you see that they have these personal religious views, which is naturally going to color their their approach. So, you know, to me, to, to, get, to get the full picture, to get a sort of a real debate on these topics, you need to take it from a skeptical standpoint, from someone who's not a Christian, from someone who's, I guess, ideally not even religious, because even if you're religious in any sense, you usually take a stance towards Christianity. You may be supportive of it, you may be uh, hostile to it, but to, in my case, I, I guess I consider myself as just a skeptical philosopher and, and um, you know, I'm not consider. I don't consider myself a religious person, so I don't have, a, in that sense, a religious bias. Um, but I do ask t- hard, critical, logical questions, and I try to get to answers. and And to me, that that perspective is lacking in this whole debate about Christianity and Jesus. As I read your book, the, the Jesus hoax, I thought, well, that sounds similar, uh, perhaps a little more um, uh, direct, uh, but it sounds similar to uh, other people that I might read. Let's say. Uh, John Dominic Crossan, a member of the Jesus Seminar or something, he doesn't think any of the miracles happened. He thinks that Jesus was eaten by dogs and all of that kind of stuff. A liberal scholar of the historical Jesus that also doesn't think that uh, the story uh, is historical. Right. Well, there's a big difference because most of the people who take that uh, critical stance in, in, 
and you're right, they would tend to view Jesus as just a mortal human who died and was buried somewhere and probably remains buried to this day. Um, even in that case, they virtually, in every case, they assume a very innocent explanation as to how that ordinary story of an ordinary man got turned into a biblical account of the Son of God who's come to save humanity. And and to me, this is highly suspicious when you have uh, a story of Jesus which is highly improbable on its face, and then you look at the supporting evidence and you find that it's lacking, and then you look at the timeline of key events that particularly the, the letters from Paul and the Gospels, and you see that these things show up decades after the alleged events, um, and there's no contemporaneous uh, confirmation of any of these stories, and all these fishy little clues start bubbling up, and, and yet here we have a Bible and letters from Paul who's acting like this is absolutely true, indubitably true, and Jesus was here, and he's the Savior, and he's the Son of God. And to me, this is more than just suspicious. This is... Uh, to me, it has to be a deliberate act. Somebody had to deliberately mislead and deceive the reader or the, who they were speaking to, to to promulgate this 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 patently false story. And and even the Jesus skeptics today, as far as I know, they never actually uh, go quite that far to assume that there was some malicious motive in place. And to, and to me, that's that's the key. That really makes the whole story make sense. And if you leave that out then it's just some, some accidental story about some regular guy who just died and somehow accidentally or innocently got turned into a, into a miraculous uh, Son of God story. Yeah, okay, well, let's go there. Uh, so, uh, and you're saying the guy is Paul. Uh, and and now, now there have been other folks who've said Paul invented Christianity, but put, t- tell us what your thesis is. Well, in a sense, he did. I mean, he invented the Christian mythology, um, I think, as far as I can tell, as far as we can tell. Um, uh, it, it was actually a very simple story that Paul puts together. If you look at the letters of Paul, he, he mentions, for, first of all, nothing of the Gospels, which is natural because the Gospels were not written in his lifetime, so he couldn't possibly have mentioned the Gospels. He doesn't quote Jesus virtually at all. He gives no facts about his history, his life story, his miraculous birth. In fact, there's no Jesus miracles at all in the letters of Paul. All that we see is a very simple idea of uh, the Son of God who came to earth and he's saving humanity and he died and was resurrected. And if we follow Jesus, then we will be resurrected too and we'll go to heaven forever. And that's it. It's a very simple theology that that comes out of Paul, uh, which doesn't mesh, mesh with the later Gospels, doesn't mesh with what we think we know about Jesus. And, and to me, it sounds highly suspicious that something here was constructed of which Paul did not know and could not know about, and yet he has a motive uh, to to make this story up and to and to promote it among the masses. This is sort of the key to the to the hoax concept. He wants to continue to foment. Is that right? Rebellion against Rome and for people to be uh, on on the side of the Jews. Is that right? Yeah, basically, right. So we have to recall a little bit of history, right? The Romans moved in in 63 BC when uh, Roman general Pompey came marching in and and took over Judea. The Jewish tribes had been in control for nearly 100 years at that point. And when the Romans marched in, they throw you out of power, whoever's in power, and the Romans take over and everybody becomes becomes part of the Roman Empire. And uh, of course, those who are thrown out of power, in this case, Paul and the Jewish elites, uh, so they're very angry. I mean, they resent the outsiders, as anybody would. They're stuck because they cannot fight back militarily because you're much weaker. You're dealing with the Roman Empire. Um, but you have this sort of internal rage at these invaders, and you want to get back at them. You want to get even. You want to get revenge. Ultimately, you want to drive them out. And and so this sort of simmering hatred went on for several decades until until the time mm-hmm. of Paul. Paul wasn't born until something like 5 or 6 A.D., but by that time, there was an active zealot movement that was actively and violently opposing the Roman rule and any of the Jews who collaborated with the Roman rule. And we seem to have some good reasons to think Paul was very sympathetic with this resistance movement. There's evidence in his letters in particular uh, that he was opposed to the Romans. He was certainly opposed to the Christians, if we can believe what he wrote at the early time, until he became a Christian, then he decided that the Christian story was actually a useful thing, and then he turns it to his advantage and starts to promote this story. 
Okay, so now was Jesus, uh, would you say Jesus was an historical person? Is there anything, what would people know about uh, the historical Jesus before, say, 100? Yeah, actually, uh, very little, almost almost nothing, actually. So the, the full knowledge of the facts of Jesus' uh, life are basically in the Gospels, and those date from the years 70 to 95, roughly. Paul tells us nothing. Paul's letters are earlier than the Gospels. They tell us nothing about the life of Jesus, nothing about what he said, basically. The problem is we really have no, we have no contemporaneous evidence. We have no, no confirmation from Pontius Pilate, nobody who lived at the time of Jesus. There's, there's no surviving evidence, any contemporaneous evidence of any kind that Jesus lived, that he did miracles, that he was the Son of God, or anything. The only assumption that I make that I think that there probably was a historical Jesus was the fact that Paul, in constructing his Jesus story, probably would want to have a kernel of truth to his, to his account, because obviously any hoax has more credibility if it starts with a kernel of truth. So I suspect that Paul started with a kernel of truth. The kernel of truth was a historical Jesus who was a Jewish preacher, probably advocated against the Romans, probably got himself crucified, and and that was probably it. That's about all we know about the historical Jesus. And, I, and then I think Paul took that little kernel of truth and turned it into the the mythology of the resurrected Jesus of the letters, and then it got created even more more mythology in the in the later Gospels. There could be, probably were a lot of guys named Jesus who were crucified by the Romans around then. <laughs> it could be. Maybe it was hard to keep track of all of them. I don't actually know. That's, yeah, that's a good... And so the stories, I think, you know, uh, about Jesus and the miracles and so forth are, are largely fictions. I mean, I think we could all pretty well say that. Uh, and uh, that would be a logical saying. We can't know for sure. But, uh, but we can say they have literary antecedents, perhaps Old Testament stories or even in some pagan mythologies of the time. Jesus is really a created figure. Did Paul have influence in how the Gospels themselves were created? I mean, would with Mark say follow Paul? Well, they're they're compatible with the letters of Paul, but because there's so little overlap, you know, we, I guess we don't really know. The the presumption is the the gospel. We actually don't know who wrote the gospels. We have names, obviously, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and John, but we don't really know who these people are. Uh, presumably, whoever the authors were, they probably were colleagues of Paul, maybe part of his small band of, of, of men, as, as I was assuming. So probably they knew each other. Paul died um, just about the time of the first uh, Jewish war, just as the temple was being destroyed. So Paul died about the year 70, uh, or certainly by the year 70, and that was just about the time the first gospel appeared, the gospel of Mark. So they were close enough in time that probably the gospel writers were either associates or followers of Paul, they probably took his little essence of a story about a resurrected uh, God who wants to save humanity, and then they had to flesh that out with a life story and a birth miracle and, and, and miracles conducted by Jesus as an adult, right? We have the 36 miracles that are documented in the Bible. And so these don't show up until somebody writes them down in the Gospels. And, of course, the reason to include these things is because you want to convince people that, that this great figure is a miracle man. He's really the Son of God, and so you have to claim that he did miracles. And the gospel writers did that, even though there's no evidence, there's no documentation, there's no confirmation that the miracles actually happened. Uh, Paul doesn't talk about the miracles, but they show up in these gospels, which are, which are written down three or four or five decades after the alleged events. So to me, this is highly suspicious, to say the least. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with David Skrbina. He's a professor at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, a professor of philosophy, and he has written The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. Well, let's go to the historical Paul, if we can. Uh, if, what would be sources that even Paul existed? Of course, he wrote these letters, but it could be anybody, right, named Paul? Well, you're right. Exactly. I mean, uh, there is, in fact, I, uh, I believe Robert Price says even the Paul letters are kind of constructions by later uh, Christian figures, which, which I guess that does not affect my thesis. If Paul was a later construction by somebody else, then fine, then the blame moves up to the gospel writers, because the gospel writers certainly claim that there was a miracle Jesus, and he's the Son of God, and he was resurrected, and so forth. So, you know, I put most of the blame on Paul, because I assume that it was an actual Paul who really wrote those letters, but I'm open to the idea if, if subsequent research shows that Paul might have been uh, uh, mythological construction as well, then I'm, I'm happy to shift the blame to the gospel writers and, and the story. My basic story doesn't change. 
it just it the, just the guilty parties shift, you know, from from Paul to the to the gospel writers. Yeah, I was just kind of curious. I, I I don't know outside of um, the New Testament itself if 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 there is any if Paul comes around in history. I asked about Jesus before for one hundred. I don't know is Paul around before one hundred. Well, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, you'd have to go back and look at. Uh, I don't have the figures in front of me. You have to look at the earliest fragments of these of these letters of Paul. You have the thirteen epistles, and I don't know. You have to look at each one and once the earliest dates. And you know, I think Robert Price suggested maybe uh, Martian or one of these later Christian fathers. Uh, maybe they constructed it. That's I guess that's possible, but. Well, but most of what you do, most of everything you've said so far, is really uh, pretty much a consensus by critical scholars. I think you, the dates of the Gospels, Paul's letters are first, uh, the Gospels are second. I mean, there's nothing there that's that's too unusual. I mean, uh, Paul uh, probably did not write, though, Timothy and Titus, and Ephesians and Colossians are probably later, too, according to kind of the consensus of those who put the seven Paul letters so, in other words, you're not going outside mainstream Jesus scholarship to make your thesis, are you? No, you're right. In terms of the basic facts, I'm agreeing. Yeah. And the unique part, the, uh, the unique piece of, that my, I'm taking is is this is the hoax hoax concept. Yeah. That it was, the whole story was deliberately constructed for a specific end, namely to undermine the Roman Empire, to get at the masses, the Gentile masses, to sort of deceive them and suck them in, to pull them away from the Roman ideology, to move them more toward a, Jew, a Judaic or a Jewish ideology, and it was a deliberate plan to do so. No one else really has made that claim of, of the current Jesus skeptics that I, that I know of. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that. Uh, who is hanging around there? When you talk about the masses, they're, they're not necessarily Jewish in Palestine. Well, the Jews were the minority in Palestine, but you had, uh, you know, the, what the, the, they called them the Greeks, right? The so members of the All Roman right. Empire. You had the indigenous uh, Palestinian Arabs. You had Egyptians. You would have had, uh, I don't know, Turks and, uh, you know, people from the surrounding areas. You had a variety of, uh, of pagan tribes uh, that, that lived in that area. So you had a you had a, a wide range of people who lived in that area of uh, of the near Middle East. So what is Paul doing then? I mean, uh, he's he's got this religion that he's he's invented. Let's go with this that he invented uh, crucifixion, resurrection, how to go to heaven, how to avoid hell, uh, believe in Jesus Christ, the the Messiah. Uh, but, but how is that a resistance against Rome? Well, right. So that's a good question. Paul's basic outlook is, in a sense, very compatible and very sympathetic with Judaism. And I mean, we know this because we talk about Judeo-Christian thinking. It's a, it's a continuous line of, of thinking in some sense. Um, but the Romans, which had adopted basically the earlier ancient Greek outlook on the world, was a very kind of a concrete, down-to-earth sort of a, an outlook. You know, it, it goes back to what Nietzsche would have called the master morality. So he had these kind of uh, values of strength and nobility and excellence and self-mastery uh, that were built into to the Roman outlook. There was, a, there was a value placed on this world. This world was the only world. This was the actual world in which you lived. You had to live a life to the fullest. There was no afterlife to worry about. Of course, you did have the gods because they had the Roman pantheon, but the gods weren't there to save you. Um, so uh, the focus was on this life, life of excellence and, and kind of internal greatness. And uh, so from the Jewish perspective, this was sort of heresy. They had a, a whole different outlook. Obviously, they had a monotheistic view with their own single god, Jehovah or Yahweh. And, and uh, so the focus was to try to get uh, the, my claim is the focus was to get the masses away from the Roman pantheon and the strength of the, of the Greek and Roman worldview in something closer to uh, a Judaic worldview with a Jewish God. So this is why the Jewish God becomes the Christian God. Jesus, the Savior of humanity, is a Jewish rabbi. And new concepts are invented by Paul, basically the idea of heaven and hell, uh, hell for the good guys, for the believers, hell for the non-believers. This was basically a, a construction and invention um, by Paul to entice and to frighten the masses. This was not part of the Greek or Roman ideology. So Paul constructs these little tricks and and and, uh, and temptations, and the focus is on a Jewish preacher, Jesus, and a Jewish God, and he's trying to entice the masses to be sympathetic to the Jewish cause and to draw them away from Rome. 
Now, is there, uh, to push back a little bit on this, uh, Professor Scribina, is there a sense in which that was a good thing for the masses? Uh, some have argued that um, that uh, with with the Roman Empire was was not a great place to live if you were one of the masses, and so this idea of Paul's communities or or this new Christian movement was actually a a, a positive thing of uh, of identity and whatnot. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, the value of the Christian story is supposed to be is, is lies in in the truth of its claims, right? That, that okay. Jesus was the Son of God, that you need to believe in Him, and that you will go to heaven and live forever with with God or Jesus or something. So, just on that fact alone, if this is if this is the construction, if there's no factual or actual reason to believe that that's true, and yet you're telling people it's true. Uh, I mean, that's hor- horrendously unethical, and it cannot possibly lead to a good outcome. You're, you're constructing a fairy tale, and you're telling people to believe this fairy tale because it's going to make them better, better people. <laughs> I mean, this is outrageous. To me, it's, I draw the analogy to, to Santa Claus, right? We, we make up stories for little children about Santa Claus and good little boys and bad little boys, and, and I suppose it works for a six-year-old, and they maybe keeps them in line, but it's uh, horrendously unethical for, uh, to do the same kind of thing with adults. So unless you have actual basis for believing this story to be true, it's, you're, you're committing a terrible crime against the people that you're promoting this story among. All right. David Skrbina is my guest. He's the author of The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. I, I remember when uh, uh, Ehrman, Bart Ehrman came out with his book, forged and and I remember learning that Paul and Ephesians and this stuff were attributed to Paul even though they weren't written by Paul but but everybody kind of smoothed that over and said but that's okay they're writing in respect and and Aaron comes and says no this is a forgery uh and I think what you're saying largely is hey wait a sec we need to look at this differently it's not just okay it's really a hoax and a deliberately uh constructed one and a malicious one, because to me it ultimately morally undermines the masses. I, you know, personally, and and just from empirically looking at history, you know, you 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 see all the negative consequences of a Christian ideology, and whether you have to go to the Crusades and the Inquisition and the witch burnings and all this kind of nasty stuff, uh, you know, look, it looks horrendous when you look through history, uh, and uh, you say, well, look, what is this belief in this uh, <laughs> this fictional afterlife and some fictitious god in the sky who loves me and so forth? You say, well, this is horrendously destructive of, of the human civilization. So, yeah, it's, it's worse than just a story. It was a malicious and a counterproductive and a highly damaging story for Western civilization. My guest is David Skrbina. His book is The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal fooled the world for 2,000 years. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Shuck, and this is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. David Skrbina is my guest. We're talking about his new book, The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shack. Let's talk. Okay, let's talk about Romans. Um, some now modern scholars who are recovering, I guess, what they might call the historical Jesus as a nonviolent revolutionary against empire. All right. Um, yep. I wanted to ask you about Romans. You said they kind of Romans are kind of bringers of civilization, and I'm thinking of the film uh, Life of Brian, Monty Python. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, I am, yeah. And which the guys are all sitting around, well, what has Rome ever done for us? You know, and they say, well, you know, it brought roads and, you know, sewage exactly, system. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, so, I mean, well, of course, right? Like, you know, I mentioned in the book, I said, well, shoot, shoot it. it. had to be some advantage to being a citizen of the greatest power on earth. Um, 
you know, it wasn't all bad. You always had to pay your taxes. You can always grumble about the, the rulers and so forth. But, uh, but you know, given the options, I think probably a lot of the masses weren't, weren't too upset at being part of the Roman Empire, frankly. So uh, what about, okay, so let's go to this next one about uh, resisting the empire. I mean, part of me wants to, wants to go with that. I, I'm obviously thinking of contemporary empires with military might and pushing themselves all around the world, and I'm kind of for these resistors. Uh, yeah, right. Well, I mean, certainly it's understandable, right? So if you were the, the, the Jewish tribes, the Jewish elite who were in charge in Judea for several decades, pushing 100 years, and then the foreign invaders come in and they throw you out, I mean, naturally... It's understandable that they're going to be angry. They want to fight back. They want to resist. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not blaming them. Uh, I understand that. I, I probably would have done the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, the means that they chose and, and the, the way that it turned out in history and the fact that they succeeded with this bogus ideology called Christianity, I mean, it ended up, ended up having these horrendous negative consequences for, for civilization Ultimately, probably was uh, maybe a leading cause of the destruction of the Roman Empire. It took took a few hundred years, but eventually, of course, Christianity worked its way to the top of the Roman hierarchy. Can, and, can you talk uh, about that? As we know, the the, the the seat of Christianity moved from Jerusalem to Rome itself. So it was a kind of a complete uh, takeover and victory by this new constructed Christian ideology. You said uh, Christianity helped bring down the Roman Empire. How, how did that happen? Well, again, I think it's because it was, it was a conflict of values. So the, so the basic values that the Romans inherited from the Greeks were these ideas of self-mastery, life affirmation, excellence, and nobility. And those were counterposed by absolutely opposite set of values that belong to the Christian story, which include things like meekness and humility and the value of suffering and the emphasis on the afterlife instead of this life. So, so Paul and the gospel writers constructed a completely opposing value system that was, it was, yeah, complete, the, the complete counterpart to the Greek and the Roman moral code. We saw what the Greeks did with this moral code. They created the greatness of ancient Athens and, and the great philosophers uh, of the past. The Romans were extremely successful, no matter what we wanted to say about them, even when to be critical, they still were highly successful and, 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 and did uh, amazing accomplishments in their you know, four or five hundred years of the of the empire, and so you promote within the system you 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 promulgate a, an opposing um, value system, this Judeo-Christian value system, and of course it's going to have a it's going to have a reaction. People are going to you you get away from this concept of greatness and self-mastery, and you get more towards this meekness and being humble and and bowing before before God and the virtue of suffering, and you live for the afterlife and. So I guess it's not surprising that the that as those values become um, diffused throughout the Roman society, that what was the Roman Empire, which was based on the Greek and Roman values, it's not surprising that that would weaken and some in, in some sense collapse. For example, you talk about the the New Testament is fully as Jewish as the Old Testament, um, yep. and so really it's an extension of I would say exceptionalism. God chose us. And and we're kind of better, and our job is to convert the world to our way of being. I mean, I, I would say that's pretty much Christianity in, in a large part. Uh, and when people attack us, you know, it's um, it's because they hate our freedoms, as George Bush might say. <laughs> right. Well, of course, but right, we have to know where this came from. It came from the Jewish Old Testament. It comes from the Pentateuch, where God chose the Jews. The chosen people were the Jews, and then the story of being chosen sort of spreads out into the Christian story generally, if you want. You can say, well, God chose the Christians, but, uh, but that was a later construction. The original, the original view was this very self-centered and conceited, and I would say megalomaniac, uh, maniacal view of the ancient Jews as being the ones who were chosen by the creator of the universe to be his uh, special envoys uh, on, on this planet. Chapter four of your book, uh, The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years, you write uh, about a, a history of how contemporary people um, uh, from several centuries before uh, the uh, the arrival of, of Jesus or the common era and afterward uh, had, a, had a regular negative view of Jews. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, yeah, it's it's striking when you look at the historical record. Uh, this goes back to well the earliest uh, documents on on Israel. You got the Maranatha Stella and and you've got the Tel Dan Stella, which uh, which show some opposition, some hostility towards the, the the Jewish tribes or towards Israel. And then you go to the documented um, writings that, that date back to about 300 BC. And it seems like when the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, every time these these guys came into contact with the Jewish tribes, they had negative, critical comments about them. And it's striking. It's a consistent theme of ideas that are that are hostile and critical towards the Jewish tribe, the Jewish outlook, and Judaism in general. And one that one that strikes me um, in particular is this claim that the Jews were misanthropic, that they had a general hatred of humanity. And this shows up over and over again over centuries in, in the ancient record. And of course, you can understand where that comes from. If the Jews say, we were selected by God, our tribe, and no one else was selected, you know, there's only one God, it's the Jewish God, he loves us, he doesn't love you guys. And this sort of engenders this idea of the Jews are better than others, uh, everyone else is second best, or they need to be opposed, or they need to be uh, whatever, d d disparaged or whatever. And this is written right in the, it's written in the Jewish holy books. So it's not surprising that others would encounter this Judaic religion and say these people they just they just hate mankind they just hate people in general because they think they're better and blessed and they're loved by god and then you get this natural reaction where people say well look they hate us we don't like them and and you get these kind of uh, statements all throughout history for like i said for centuries it's really uh, an astonishing uh, story of negative critical comments the romans were i mean they were taking over territory as a part of the roman empire expansion for centuries and so there was always disputed territory, but to my knowledge, they never ran across another people who were considered, you know, the vilest of mankind and misanthropic and they, you know, hated people and was an accursed race. I mean, you see phrases that relate specially to the Jews, which were not used in any of the other areas around the empire that I'm aware of and not against any of the other tribes or the other territories that the empire was taking over. So it seems that there was something uniquely uh, oppositional about the the Jewish tribes and and their outlook on the world. Would you say that even sharing this information uh, would um, result in a charge of anti-Semitism? It's certainly possible. You know, anytime you highlight some negative uh, aspects of Jews or Jewish history, somebody doesn't like it. I guess this is sort of what anti-Semitism has come to in the modern uh, modern era. It's just if if someone doesn't like what you say about Jews or Judaism, then yeah, they slap a label on you. Um, but this is not opinion. This is not uh, guesswork. This is uh, documented um, history. Yeah, you're, so, you're backing it up. I mean, you're 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 quoting from histor uh, from people in that time. Absolutely, I'm I'm giving precise citations. Anyone can verify any of these statements that I'm talking about. They're all documented in my book. So it's it's very clear. It's black and white. It's not disputable. I guess you can. You can not like the fact that I'm bringing up factual history, but, uh, well, I'm sorry, that's what philosophers do. We, we deal with factual history, and we try to make sense of it. And when you look at this factual history, you say, well, there were centuries of, of um, hatred back and forth between the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks and anybody else they ran into, and that that was probably a context, this sort of mutual hatred and distrust, that was a context that would, that would have driven someone like a Paul and his, his cabal to take these kind of extreme actions against the Romans, against the Gentiles in general. They had a long, simmering hatred of these people, and uh, they would have gone to any lengths to undermine them and to reassert their own control. Would Judaism have survived if it weren't for Christianity? I, I suspect Judaism would have, would have survived. You would have had the Old Testament, and that would have carried on. That was all. That was completely written, of course, before the time of Jesus or Paul or the Gospel writers. So, if there had not been a Paul, then there might never have been a Jesus hoax. We might never have heard of Jesus. There might have been no Christianity. Uh, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, to me, this kind of this kind of idea, and, and I emphasize this in the book. It's to me, it's like it's like one of those insight moments. It's a light bulb flashing on in somebody's head, and it makes sense that there was one guy, and so probably it was a Paul or somebody, you know, this is this is kind of why I'm, I'm, I'm fingering him as the guilty party. It's, it's one of those light bulb moments that must have gone on in his mind at some point, and he says, look, I can use this story, and I can, 
I can use it against the Romans, and and I'm going to just promote this, and I'm going to draw followers in and see what I can do with this thing. So, so uh, yeah, if there had not been that guy who had this insight, this you know a lightning strike of a, of an insight uh, and what he could do here, um, that that may have never happened, and history would have been very different. I'm I'm sure. Thesis of your book is that it is a, a concerted effort as opposed to kind of organic evolution. Well, that's right. You know, this kind of thing to me can't happen by accident. It can't happen by rumor. You know, I addressed that in the, one of the last chapters. Some some people think, well, maybe rumors grew over time, and and that's how they ended up in the gospel stories. But to me, that just that just doesn't make sense. Um, uh, the the stories are connected. These guys know each other. They're from the same sort of Jewish elite. They're tra- t- tapping into Old Testament themes. There's Old Testament themes in Paul's letters and in all the Gospels. To, to me, it's just that there's, a, there's too much coherence in the story, and there's too much reason to, to, to think that they were using this for ideological or for, for propaganda purposes to promote a viewpoint to achieve certain ends. And to me, that just can't happen by accident, can't happen by rumor. It had to be a plan, and that's, that's why it was a hoax, in my view. What about um, centuries of antipathy and oppression? of Jews by Christians. I get you what you're saying is that Christianity is really a, a, an extension of Judaism, but it kind of took a different turn in terms of being used against them? Well, that's a good point, because Christianity historically has been opposed to Judaism, but we knew it grew out of Judaism. And to, to me, again, within my thesis, this makes perfect sense, because, because the hoax story started with Paul, on my view, and a small group of his followers. And so they're trying to promote this story about this guy, Jesus, who was just a guy. They want to make him into the Son of God, the Savior of humanity. Now, of course, he's going to be opposed in that view by the Orthodox Jews, who don't believe that there was a Son of God who came, that they don't believe that there was a Savior, that, that, this, that Jesus was a Savior at all. So Paul and his, his, his fellow Jewish elite are going to be very much against this ideology because it's opposed to the whole concept of Judaism in general. So Paul, and I describe this in the book, Paul is fighting against two enemies. He's fighting against the Roman Empire, which is his ultimate enemy, but more immediately he's fighting against his fellow Jews and the Jewish elite who don't buy this Jesus story. They don't like this Christian ideology. They don't like the idea of Savior come to, come to earth to save humanity. So Paul is fighting against the Jews. He's fighting against the Romans, and I think you see this in the writings. This is why you see even in the letters of Paul, and certainly in the Gospels, you see hints of antagonism towards the Jews, because they did have enemies in their fellow Jews, and you see antagonism against the worldly powers, sometimes cleverly called Satan or the devil, which was understood to be Rome. But you see opposition to both of these sets of enemies in, in the Christian writings themselves, and that makes perfect sense. That's what you would expect, given the hoax scenario. David Skrbina is my guest. He's the author of The the Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal uh, Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. Now, one of the things you write, and this is where I wanted to come to, is um, uh, near the end, you said that perhaps a question comes to mind, why haven't we heard anything about this all before? Why isn't there a critical understanding of our own history? Well, right. So I think there's a lot of vested interests that support directly or indirectly the traditional story. The government, I guess, the government, which theoretically should be neutral in a whole religious debate, but um, the government sort of likes, in some sense, likes subservience. They like believers because they tend to put their faith in their leaders, including the government. There's no need to, you know, the, if the government took a critical view towards Christianity, they're going to be, they're going to have people, voters who don't like them. So it's not going to be politically popular. So there's good reason to kind of keep the Christian story alive from the government standpoint, to not challenge it, to not rock the boat, to try to keep your many Christian voters happy and and just sort of be relatively aloof on the whole topic. So uh, that's on the government side. The media side, uh, as I describe in the book, has a a significant influence from from the Jewish lobby and uh, filmmakers and authors and screenwriters. And... I guess it's clear that because there's this uh, kind of adverse angle to the Jewish history, it sounds antagonistic, it sounds deceptive, 
Um, I think it's not too hard to understand that uh, Jewish writers, filmmakers, would not be too anxious to promote this view. Uh, at very least, they would have to explain it and describe how it was an anomaly, which I think it was. It was kind of a, an exceptional case. Um, but it would raise a lot of difficult questions. So I think Hollywood in general doesn't really want to deal with it. The media in general doesn't find much interest in talking about this story. Um, obviously, Christians don't want to raise this because it gets to the heart of their whole outlook. Uh, Orthodox Jews don't want to talk about it because it raises some troubling questions about uh, Jewish a a actions in the past. And even Muslims, as I said, even Muslims tend to buy into some aspects of the story because they're part of the same lineage. It's still part of the Abraham, Abrahamic tradition. So Muslims who have their issues with both Christians and Jews, they tend to not want to attack the basis of the story. Even Muslims view Jesus as a kind of a, as a, kind of a prophet, a kind of a semi-divine prophet. So even they are not too interested in really criticizing the Jesus story. So we have a lot of people who have a vested interest in, in just not talking about the truth at all, or even raising these issues, even raising these questions. So I guess I'm not not too surprised that we just don't hear about this in our media or in our universities or in our, in our schools. Ah, well, all right. Well, I'm glad you're doing it on Progressive Spirit. I think the whole point is to figure out what the truth is and to keep pressing on it. My question now, Paul, Romans 13, honor the emperor. So uh, what, what, what's he talking about there? Uh, if he's against empire, although... Ironically, that phrase has worked uh, in modern times to not criticize, uh, for example, military endeavors um, by the government. Uh, uh, you know, just honor the emperor, just go along with what they say, obedient Christian. Yeah. Well, again, so, uh, you know, my thesis, Paul has to be subtle in his, in his opposition. So he, he, it, it, it would have been like suicidal to say, get out there and attack Rome, and I hate the emperor, and so forth. I mean, that would get you killed in a minute, I would assume, back then. Okay. So you had to be, he had to be more subtle in, in, his, in his wording. So he has to say, you know, uh, you know, he has to sort of give his due to the powers of there, but, but we're fighting these, you know, the, the evil powers of the world, and, you know, there's rebellion coming, and... and um, you know, we the the uh, you know the we need to turn from Satan away from the idols. You know, we need to go away from the present evil age. These are kind of things that that Paul talks about, and these are sort of all subtle clues to the paganism of Rome and the Roman Empire. And I think he has to do it in sort of an indirect way. That's natural, uh, just because he wants to get this message of resistance out there without being too explicit, because that would be uh, that would be deadly for him. So, for Paul, does he believe what he says? I mean, does he think that there's going to be a heaven for him and others? I mean, if if he doesn't, then then what is he about? No, I, I think he completely knows he's making a hoax. I think he knows he's lying to people. In fact, I call him a master liar. In fact, I call him the epic liar of all of history because he knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's true. He knows he's promulgating falsehood, and he's doing it for the benefit of uh, the Jewish tribes. So... Uh, yeah, to me, he, he, he is as he always was, which was an Orthodox Jew. I, I think that's how he started out his life. I think that's how he ended his life. But he constructed the story that he was going to promote till the end of, uh, of this Jesus hoax. The Jesus hoax, how St. Paul's cabal fooled the world for 2,000 years. There's a controversial book for your book club, David Skirbina, a uh, professor at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, has been my guest. Professor Skirbina, I, I appreciate your work, and thanks for being with me today. Well, thank you. It's nice to be able to talk about the, these ideas in some detail, so I appreciate it, John. Thanks. We've now finished three interviews in my five-part series on revisioning Christianity. Find a podcast of the interview you just heard with David Skirbina, plus interviews with John Dominic Crossan and Bart Ehrman at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Still to come in this series, Angela Yarber, creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. The Holy Women Icons Project isn't just a book or writing, it isn't just the artwork, but we're hoping that it's a movement. We've turned it into a 501c3 nonprofit. We have 
three really exciting programs that we're launching this year. And the work is, for me, very enlivening and meaningful um, to be able to research these revolutionary women throughout history and mythology around the world, and then to kind of give traditional iconography a folk feminist twist by painting them and then writing about them because their stories are so amazing and so underheard that uh, they deserve to be told and celebrated and lauded and stained in glass and hung in every cathedral and entered into every textbook all over the world because that's how amazing these women are. Also still to come, John Shelby Spong, author of Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. I said in this book that people will regard this, religious people will regard this book as a very radical book. But I'm convinced that time will mean that this book is not nearly radical enough. It does not go into a reformation as deep as what the one we're in. And uh, Christianity is in a battle for its life. I'd like to think it might win that battle, but I'm not certain. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Progressive Spirit is perfect for public radio, community radio, and college radio stations. Thanks to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California. WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon. KYAQ, Newport, Oregon, KZ88, Kabul, Missouri, KBOG, Bandon, Oregon, and 3A Oldies 91.9 in Epsom, New Hampshire. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.